Yeah, we're so glad that you're here today, and we're so glad that you've come to celebrate King Jesus, who was born into this world 2,000 years ago, and his hope and his peace and his joy continue to be available at each and every moment for those of us who look for it. And so tonight we're going to hear a series of stories that talk about that. Real hope, real peace. Uh, I talked about it yesterday in my sermon, Real Joy. So if you want to hear about joy, you can go online to sedaraschurch.com or get our uh, app and listen to uh, our sermons. Uh, you can listen to the sermon on joy. If you need joy, if you're struggling in this season to find joy, you could go listen to that. And then Pastor Ryan will bring us a message of how do we find love at this time of year and every time of year in the person of Jesus. So thank you for being here. We're so glad that you've come to worship with us. Go ahead and stand now as we sing another song to the King. We went to the Seattle Art Museum and almost got kicked out by the end of it. A kind but stern docent came by with a 15-minute-to-close warning while we were looking at Indian art. And by the time she circled back around for the five-minute-to-close warning, we had only made it as far as the African art, which is not very far. We were standing in front of uh, what is mine and coincidentally his favorite painting, uh, a Pacific Northwest landscape, when a security guard peered around the corner looking less kind and a little more stern, and we decided it was time to get the show on the road. Getting the show on the road meant going across the street uh, to a restaurant and uh, sharing stories over dinner and drinks for the next two and a half hours. We, uh, we scheduled a second date for the next day, and then a third, and a fourth, so on and so forth. And what's really funny about this guy is he seemed to take his date ideas straight from Hallmark holiday movies. Um, on one of the early dates, we, uh, he invited me over to make holly wreaths from the clippings of the holly tree in his backyard. Another one, we went to Goodwill and wandered up and down the aisles to find the perfect white elephant gift for one of his gift exchanges, brought it back to my house, wrapped it together, and drank tea by the fire. Sickeningly sweet, I know. But let me pause just to say, I have never been the girl in a relationship. Ten out of ten times in a romantic comedy, I am the sidekick, best friend, comedic relief type. And uh, growing up a little bit taller and a little bit chubbier and with teeth a bit more crooked than the rest of my peers, I traded boys for AP classes and dates for editing the yearbook. And then I got to college, and a lot of my friends got boyfriends, and you know what I got? Braces. Um, and while it doesn't discount a dating life, it didn't bode well for mine, and that was okay. I had so much hope and expectancy for God's plan in my relational life, um, and it would happen after I graduated, after I got my braces off, when I had a community and confidence and a life stage in which marriage was actually feasible. But then there I was, sitting across my kitchen table, decorating snowflake sugar cookies with this guy who, by all measures, was really wonderful, by the light of a Christmas tree, of course. And it was the closest I had felt to my longing of relationship and marriage to being fulfilled. Um, though I wasn't ready to say I do anytime particularly soon, he was wonderful. 
Um, but instead of feeling a sense of hope um, and expectancy that I felt when I was younger for God's plan in my life, uh, something just wasn't right. And I knew, I was convicted that this was not the man that I would be decorating snowflake Christmas cookies with for the rest of my life. But I thought, I can handle this. By some measure of wit and charm and endurance, I can just see how this goes and stick with it a little bit longer um, and ignore this conviction. But all that really did for me was provide a, a lousy appetite and tossing and turning for several nights. So I kept going on dates, and I kept coming home feeling frustrated. And uh, during that season, I was invited to the reminder that God wants us to long and hope. Spoiler alert, I'm single now. Um, and I could not be more thrilled because this invitation to long and hope was such a gift. Um, it's an invitation that I think God offers around Christmas time when we're thinking about hope and joy and peace, but also every other day of the year. But what does that look like? Uh, first, it means accepting God's invitation to believe that what he says is true, um, that his promises will be fulfilled, and that we can take him at his word. Promises like he's a father that gives good gifts, and uh, he'll make straight the paths when we acknowledge him, and that he cares about my relationships, big and small now and into my future. Simultaneously, that looks like forsaking my own plans. And for the people in this crowd that know me, you know that I'm a planner, and you know that I'm independent, and so this is not the easiest step for me. Um, but even if it means that I will never get married someday, though that is a longing of my heart, I trust that God's plans are greater than my own. And then lastly, it looks like waiting. And this is also another step that I'm not particularly good at, but uh, I'm learning little by little, um, to wait to see what God would have for me um, and to see what, what gifts he has that I couldn't even envision for myself. You know, there's a, a part of uh, the nativity story that came to mind even before I was kind of piecing together this story being told on Christmas Eve. Um, but it's, there's a, a part that Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, says to her when she's pregnant with Jesus that I would love to share with you all. Um, and I hope that what she says plants in your hearts as much as it has in mine in recent years. Um, in Luke 1, starting on verse 39, it says, Mary hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth, her cousin. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And right here in verse 45 is something that I've written on many sticky notes, put it on mirrors and notebooks and whatever it may be. Um, but Elizabeth says this to Mary, Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. May we at Christmas and every day believe that the Lord would fulfill his promises to us. And may that inspire hope. Angels we have heard on high Sweetly singing o'er the plains And the mountains in reply Echoing their joyous strain 
Hi, church. My name's Trista Smith, and I have my little family here, Tyler and Theodore. And uh, I'm going to share you with you a little bit about my story. Um, I'm going to read it because when I get nervous, I will ramble. Um, so we're going to try to stick to this. And I might get emotional, so bear with me. My story is a common one, which I think is why I was asked to share tonight. Holidays, and Christmas in particular, have a very special way of spotlighting those relationships that are in our lives that are not what we want them to be. Some are gone and deeply missed. Some are difficult, possibly painful, and failing to meet our desires or expectations. My relationship with my father has been the latter. I was a daddy's girl through and through. He was the best thing in the world until I was about the age of 10. From there, everything started falling apart quickly. While there were still some good days, like the dad that I remembered, more and more were filled with fear and anxiety. My dad first moved out when I was 12, which started a series of him leaving for up to three years while I was in high school. All the while, though, he would show up randomly at our family home, and as I got older, I just did the best that I could to remove myself from this situation. My parents were separated and divorced in my early 20s. The behavior during that time escalated to a point that I broke up as I broke off as much contact as I could with my father. I blocked him from my phone for nearly five years, from the ages of 22 to 27. However, being as young as I was, I didn't really realize the effect that this would have on my younger siblings, who were left to carry so much of the anxiety and fear on their own. When I was 27, we found ourselves in a family emergency situation where my 16-year-old sibling was in the hospital, and I just, we just realized that something had to change. What I was doing wasn't working for me or my family. Tyler and I had been married since I was 21 and attempting to manage this broken relationship, but now the stakes were just getting too high. I remember having these conversations with Tyler as believers, trying to figure out how to move forward, how to change the cycle of pain, fear, and failed expectation. When I was 28, I was in a community group at a previous church, and I heard a peer say something. She said that she had finally realized that Jesus had died even for her dad, and that really struck my heart and started reframing how I felt about my own father. I had been praying for him to change, for our situation to change, for him to stop failing us, but instead, God knew what I really needed and began giving me doses of peace, the peace to start letting go of my judgment and my anger for him failing my expectations, the peace to open my life and heart to reconciliation, if that should happen someday, the peace of knowing that God's forgiveness is what my father needs, not mine. This peace has provided me with freedom. I have no longer been stuck of the cycle of failed expectation resulting in heartbreak. Instead, I long for a relationship with my father that is fulfilling, and in this longing over the last five years, 
some amazing things have happened. Last year, on Christmas Day, my dad was excited talking to Pastor Ryan about how he had started reading his Bible. In 2018, my father finished reading the whole New Testament, making reading the Bible a morning ritual. At the end of August this year, I received a phone call that my dad had been in a terrible rollover accident. It was caused by a drunk driver pushing his truck with a trailer off of the freeway. He was somersaulting for hundreds of feet, landing in a vineyard outside of Modesto. My dad, who 95% of the time does not wear a seatbelt, never has, felt something in his gut, the Holy Spirit, telling him that he should put his seatbelt on, and he did. He miraculously survived the accident, uh, was even able to walk away. Yet, when I got the phone call, I cried. Because I know that that phone call could have had other outcomes. But by God's grace, our story doesn't end here. Because of God's peace, I now experience this near-death, experience, or this near-death accident as a gift where a decade ago, I would have wholeheartedly believed that, the, that all of our lives would have been better without him. Because I have a Father in heaven who loves me perfectly, who grants me peace now, I am able to long for my earthly father to become like my heavenly father. I can await reconciliation and enjoy restoration with a full heart. I'm going to read Philippians 4. 4 through 7. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guide your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Thank you. Good evening. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at Sedaris Church. Um, and if you're joining us for the first time, an extra warm welcome uh, to you. Thanks for pressing into uh, Christmas Eve with us. I do want to point out, um, if you wanted to participate in the World Concern but didn't have uh, cash on you at all, we also have like a drop-down menu option on our online uh, giving website. Uh, so if you, if you just go to sedaraschurch.com, click the Give link at the top, you'll be able to give to World Concern that way to help children come out of, of sex trafficking and then also to, to give audio Bibles. Um, out as well. Um, one thing I want to say before I get started is if your children lose it, that's fine. Okay, this is a family service, so if they are loud and rambunctious, that's okay. I'm sure, well, one of mine's asleep right there, uh, so she, she'll be great, but if, if your children's lo- children lose it, that's fine. Okay, cool. Well, um, as you uh, can tell, um, we've been pressing into the coming of Jesus in the season of Advent as a church for about the last month or so, uh, which is why those, uh, some of those stories were told tonight. Um, and I, I'm going to uh, talk a little bit longer than they did, but I want to start with a story as well. Um, in 2011, uh, the New York Times uh, published an article by a Minnesota judge, a Minnesota judge named Lloyd Zimmerman. 
Lloyd Zimmerman. Uh, it's, it's, it's called uh, Making a Judgment on Love, if you want to read it for yourself. But this is what this article went over. It pretty much discussed a bad day at the office for a judge. <laughs> uh, all morning, uh, Judge Zimmerman had been sitting in a trial over a case um, between a family feud, and I didn't realize it, but I read this article, and judges actually assume a lot of, like, really hard, difficult, like, uh, they have to be in the middle of it, so they get all, like, the flack from whatever disagreement these parties are having, so they have huge emotional weights on them. They view their chambers as, like, a, a place of refuge, so he got done doing an almost all-day trial between a, a, a feuding family, went back to his chambers, collapsed in his seat, discouraged, then he also just thought, you know what, I didn't actually even preside over this case that well myself. I don't think there's points I could have judged better today. He looked out his door, there's a line of people that were forming that he says no doubt needed uh, something from him. Everything's an emergency and they all needed his signature so they could get around the processes of the law. This is something that seemed to irritate him quite a bit, actually. Um, and then at that moment, his phone rang. His phone rang, and he says that usually he wouldn't answer his phone in after a day like that, but for whatever reason, he did. And on the other end of the line was a hospice nurse named Cheryl. Cheryl. Um, Cheryl was um, a hospice nurse, and, and she began to describe a situation to him. She said, I have a, a dying patient. His name is Thomas. He's 77 years old, and his, his last wish before, uh, before dying, his, his bedside wish, is to marry his lifelong partner of 38 years. Her name is Donna. And, and then at this point, uh, Lloyd types out in his article, he's like, I get a couple calls like this every week. I guess the, the, the law in Minnesota is um, you have to apply for your, your marriage license and then get married. Uh, there's like a five-day gap there. Um, so you have to wait for five days. I guess it's because it's a big decision. So the state of Minnesota says you need to sleep on it like four times before you move forward. And, and so uh, this option was obviously not going to be available to Thomas. As Cheryl described, you know what? He has probably only a day to live. Um, he can't talk at all. And we're actually a, a far distance from you. So if you're going to perform this wedding ceremony, you're going to have to do it over the phone. And, and, and Lord Zimmerman kind of thought, at that point, he kind of reflected and he started thinking about, what, what could this cost me? What, what, what am I opening myself up to liability-wise? He lists out a couple scenarios. Well, there could be an heir that, by this marriage, all of a sudden no longer inherits the family wealth and they could sue me. Or the, the, the court of appeals could actually flog me um, because I've actually gone around the law and done something slightly illegally here. But for whatever reason, uh, this is what he said, actually. He said, uh, was this yet another case of people irresponsibly leaving things until the last minute? Probably. But I realized in the moment that it didn't matter. People do stupid human things, and I could make this one right. <laughs> so he spent the entire afternoon blowing off the, the line of people waiting outside his door, and instead he... he called the family and checked it up and got as much information as he could uh, regarding the situation. And then he conducted the ceremony where Thomas re re replied his yeses by squeezing the, the chaplain's finger there. Okay? Zimmerman concludes his article like this. With their families looking on, I pronounce Thomas and Donna husband and wife, invoking the power vested in me by the laws of Minnesota. I told them that after 38 years together, they could now kiss each other for the first time as a married couple. I was told they did, and later that evening, Thomas died. 
Shortly thereafter, I issued my court order, complete with procedural history and legal analysis, directing the licensing bureau to accept and file the wedding license and issue a certificate of marriage. He closes by saying, I've written thousands of orders in my many years as a judge, but this one, this one was my best. Now, why do we love this story? Well, we, we love it because we see a judge putting his neck on the line to unite people together. We, we don't really love it for the, the love that Thomas and, and Donna shared, for, although I'm sure it was an, a great love to sustain them over 38 years, but we love it because we see the love of the judge coming through, don't we? And I, I want to suggest that we love it because this is a picture of Jesus. This is a picture of Jesus. You see, God looked down from heaven and he looked upon us. He looked upon humanity. There we were. And you know what? We were doing stupid human things. But like the judge, God said, I can make that right. I can make that right. And so this is uh, how Matthew actually starts the, the birth account of Jesus in his gospel. We're going to put it on the screen for you as well. This is Matthew chapter 1. He says, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. I wonder what that conversation was like. That's an awkward conversation to have with your betrothed. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew follows it up with his own comment. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. This is some 700 years before Jesus showed up on the scene. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Is that on there? It continues to say, which means God with us. Do you see that? Did you see what this says? This Jesus, this baby entered into the world with the purpose to accomplish one thing as Emmanuel, one thing as God with us. He came here to unite us to God once again. And, and similarly to Judge Zimmerman, it would mean some liability. It would mean some risk. God showing up as a baby should make our jaws drop. What? He could die. God, a baby, being born in a manger, there's no NICU there if anything goes wrong. God could die. There's risk associated here with this. And what's more is that as this baby grew up, got older and older and started taking more and more steps, it became more and more clear that this God, the Son of God, Jesus, not just might die, but would certainly die. And as we read the, the back half of the Gospels, it seems that he almost wants to die. Now, I, I know what you might be thinking, Ryan, this is Christmas. We're talking about the birth of Jesus. You've like hopscotched way ahead. You're 30 years down the road. What, what are you doing here? That's a good, that's a good observation if, if you made it, you know. But, but when we're searching for the purpose of Christmas, we start with the purpose for why Jesus came. And, and, and that purpose, Matthew tells us here, 
is to save his people from their sins. And in order for that to happen, Jesus would have to die. And, and, and many of you might have another great question at this point that goes like this. Why can't God just forgive us? Why the need for all this death on the cross stuff, all, 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 this, all, this, all this death stuff? Like Dave, you saw Pastor Dave up here. Dave's wronged me before. I didn't have to kill my firstborn in order to be okay with Dave again, right? Why, why all this death stuff? Why does God have to do that? That's a really good question. Think about it like this. Think about it like this. If someone wrongs you, there's really only two options available for you. One, you can make them suffer by getting back at them. Revenge, you can make them suffer. Or your second option is you actually refuse revenge and you forgive them. But you actually suffer in that case. You actually suffer by absorbing the consequences that their wrongdoing against you actually cause. You see, forgiveness in, in terms of the biblical notion of forgiveness is really canceling a debt. So if someone runs into your car with their car, forgiving them actually means looking at them and saying, that's okay, I'll pay for that. So, so in that sense, no one really ever forgives someone else running into their car, right? But forgiveness in the biblical sense is, is taking on that debt, that burden that, of the wrongdoing upon yourself, and so forgiveness always comes with suffering. We can't have forgiveness without suffering. And if we can't forgive without suffering, how much more must God have to forgive? How much more must he have to suffer in order to forgive us? You see, all the wrongdoing that we do here within this creation, this creation isn't ours, it's God's. And so the wrongdoing that we do here is actually a lot like us taking a hammer to God's Cadillac. I don't know if any of your parents had Cadillacs growing up, but it's a lot like taking a hammer to God's Cadillac. And for him to forgive us means that he assumes the suffering that that forgiveness entails. And on the cross, God's love satisfies his own justice in this way by suffering, by bearing that penalty for sin. You see, there's never forgiveness without suffering. There's never forgiveness without nails, without thorns, without sweat, without blood, without Jesus crying. There, there's no forgiveness without those things. And, and so Jesus showed up to suffer forgiveness for us. He just didn't do it for, as a nice thing for us, but he gave himself, Emmanuel, God with us, gave himself so that we could be in relationship with God again. And, and now he truly is Emmanuel. For, for all who would trust in him, who, for all who would trust in Jesus, the Christ. The New Testament writers would, would talk about it like this, that, that there's some mysterious thing that happens when someone believes or, or trusts in Jesus. And, and they, they put it like this. It's very mysterious and vague for us too. They said that person is now in Christ. They're in Christ. What does that mean? Well, first, it means that we are intensely, intensely loved by God, who's re renewing his people into a flourishing humanity. And in fact, that means that that love is for everybody, that anybody, no matter who they are or what they've done, is intensely loved by God. You are loved is what, Je is what baby Jesus in a manger means. And you can only see the full depth of it if you see the full purpose for why he came to unite us to him. And so at the danger of sounding oversimplistic, I'll, I'll, I'll say this, 
that this baby drew a, a line, uh, he drew a line in the sand. Either you agree with his purpose on earth to save people from their sin, or as the Jesus storybook Bible put it, to rescue humanity, unite humanity God again, or you don't. You see, but, but Jesus is a gift for all who he is really to be received by all who would like a personal relationship with God. Christmas is about God giving himself to us so that he might forgive and redeem us from sin and renew us through relationship with him. And what's the most beautiful thing about this is Jesus didn't show up on the scene to a bunch of people who had already done a great job at cleaning themselves up. No, he actually came in spite of that. He actually came and showed up on the scene to the people of God who are actually rebelling against God in some pretty subtle and nasty ways. In fact, the only way to be cleaned up is actually to be in Christ. Because when we are in Christ is when we actually begin to see the treasures of God. Those are actually in Christ. There's, there's, a, there's a holiday song uh, that's, I think it's new this year. I've never heard it before. I don't like to be a songmonger, but I'm going to be a little bit of a songmonger right now. But it, it goes like this. Um, give, out, uh, give, give out your hope, hope, hope. Give out your peace, peace, peace. Give out your love, love, love. Give out your joy, joy. Joy, you know, it's, it's a song uh, encouraging us to give each other love, love, joy, peace, all, all of the tidings of the holidays. But this kind of rubs against the Christian worldview that says we don't have a lot of joy to give. We don't have a ton of love, a ton of peace to give to one another. But instead, when we, bego- when we are in Christ and we're trusting Jesus, we look around and there are treasures there. There's an abundance of hope. There's an abundance of joy. There's abundance of love outside of us in Christ. And we take that and we bring that to the world. And we say, look at this. It's not mine, but I found it over here in Christ. And you can have some too if you want to trust in him. You see, Jesus came here so that, we, so that he could scandalously give sinners his perfection. All of his treasures. So that we could be united in relationship to a perfect God and experience life. Baby Jesus in a manger says, I'm here to die for you so that you can be reunited to God, so that you can be in me. And in that way, God is with us and we wait for him to come in full again. Would you bow your head with me this Christmas? Father, we are amazed at your son. We are amazed at your heart. We are amazed at your love for us, God, that, that while we were still sinning, while we were still pushing back against anybody having, having any inkling of rule in our life, you said that you would come and die for those very people, Lord. And, and so right now we, we just sit in awe of you and, and we uh, celebrate the fact that you love us and that you reached out to make a way so that we could be with one another again, Lord. And so um, as the band leads us here, I just pray you'd stir our hearts towards you, towards a deeper revelation of this baby that showed up in a manger who radically reshaped this world for 2,000 years now. So I thank you for my friends and I pray that you would minister to them through this time. In the name of Jesus and by your spirit, amen.